In his song, Happy, Pharrell Williams proclaims, happiness is the truth. On Tribute to Happiness, we speak with guests who are putting this truth into practice, sharing their stories about what happens when happiness becomes a genuine focus. Tribute to Happiness is brought to you by Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer, Heather Svein Bjornsson. Hello and good morning. This is Iceland's Chief Happiness Officer. One does not get appointed as a nation's chief happiness officer. It's a choice. It's a choice about how I want to serve my country and community, about addressing something critical that's missing in society. Listening and gratitude are things that are missing, especially in our work lives. Add those two things and positivity and productivity take off. Leave them out and work becomes routine, performance mediocre. Let's explore some new ideas and thinking about happiness at work. Let's also look at happiness at home and happiness in life. In this episode of Tribute to Happiness, we have the voice, the man himself who introduces the Tribute to Happiness podcast. He is a legend dare I say, in the internal communication world. And we are going to talk about internal communication and link it with happiness at work, how, how it can, like, does it matter? So who is my guest today? And notice the person is not on Zoom. So I'm so delighted to have a person live in front of me. So who, are, who is my guest today? You can speak now. Well, my name is Mike Klein, and I am an internal communication consultant and also the founder of an initiative called We Lead Comms, which recognizes communication professionals for making contributions above and beyond what's required. Whether it's a little or a lot, it doesn't matter. It's all about initiative. And if you're willing to do more than you're asked, you deserve to be recognized for it. So that's what we're doing with Lead, with We Lead Comms. A um, bit about me, I am an American living in Iceland. Iceland is my seventh country. I've also lived in Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, the United States, and Great Britain. Um, I hold two passports, and I am a 26-year-long supporter of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Yeah, okay. We can discuss that later, the Tottenham Hotspur. Beers into the happiness conversation. No, it will not. <laughs> but it, it sounds like you don't know where you should stay. Seven countries, and you are only 29. Yo. 56. Oh. <laughs> but so what? an average of eight country, you know, eight years per country. But seriously, I mean, a lot of it is that, you know, I'm very much at home in my profession and in what I do. Yeah. And at the same time, I also, you know, get a lot of energy out of, you know, discovering and adjusting to and recognizing and, you know, being able to identify some of the unique characteristics of each of the countries in which I've lived. And also the cities as well. I mean, before I got into internal comms and before I went to business school, I worked on political campaigns in the U.S. And, you know, I probably lived, you know, I lived in 13 different states um, over the course of my time in the U.S. I left the U.S. when I was about 33. And, you know, it's a it's an interesting journey, but, I mean, I feel at home in myself as much as anything. Uh. So I don't feel a need to stay somewhere forever. But on the other hand, I like Iceland, and I'm not planning on going anywhere any, anytime soon. So you must love technology and how technology has evolved over the course of the last decade so you can just be wherever and do whatever right i mean the ability of technology to minimize admin and bookkeeping and the need for rigid forms of organization has been an immense help for me i mean you know i i write a lot and the way I search back for the stuff that I've written is more chronological than topic-based. And so, like, a, a laptop computer is, like, the most amazing invention in the world. Yeah. And now the communication technology 
I don't bitch about Zoom. I actually like Zoom. I mean, yes, it's nice to be have a face-to-face conversation about this. It's rare living in Iceland and working in internal comms just because Iceland doesn't have a lot of large companies. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I kind of feel like I'm in a way in the center of the universe. It's like, you know, I'm, I've got Europe to the to my east, I've got the U.S. to my west, you know, in the morning or in the evening, I can talk to Australia, and it's a really nice setup. Yeah, so you are, you are just happy. Yeah. It's, it's most, the best thing is to be happy within yourself, like, or like you feel centered, yeah, whatever I mean, you are. it's not constant. I mean, you know, being an independent consultant and having a distinctive proposition, my focus in internal comms is really on content research and strategy. And, you know, that's that's super niche. And mm. sometimes it's a struggle. And I can't say that I'm always happy when I'm struggling. But by and large, I'm happy with the way that I work. I'm happy with the work that I do. I was talking with my wife this morning. And I just said, you know, if I was doing exactly what I was doing and making twice as much money for it, I'd be the happiest person in the world. Yeah. But it's not about the money. It's about the ability to do what I do without having to worry about where the next client or the next meal is coming from. Yeah. But when we are talking internal communication, can you go uh, like explain it a little bit because I have I posted this picture on my Facebook uh page the other day where it was the Maslow hierarchy but instead of everything you need to have to survive it was meeting about and then another meeting about uh, the stuff you were meeting about and then you have to plan another meeting and actual actual work is just 10% of what <laughs> was suggested well, in this well I, I saw that graphic and I had a small amount of empathy with it yeah because yes inside of an organization you often have meetings that could be emails. You often have, you know, a lot of wasted time because everybody feels that they need to have, you know, for lack of a better term, to lift their leg on the subject, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, that's part, but, you know, it, inclusiveness is also part of the process. It isn't just simply about, you know, doing the fast, you know, the right thing the fastest possible way, because even though sometimes that works, the lack of alignment that it causes with other people doing other things may be much more significant than just the simple task that, you know, when you've got your eyes on one thing, you don't have the eye on the big picture. And meetings, as inefficient as they are, are one of the few ways you can really gather that, whether they're Zoom meetings or in-person meetings or what have you. Um, the issue is, you know, having the wisdom to know who the right people are in terms of inviting those people to that meeting. So let's jump to the question, what is internal communication and how, how, how is it in a simple form? You, I have witnessed a, where you had a keynote speak or a, a lecture about this, where you talked about the different hats yeah. people in organization have. Can you just dive a little bit into the question of what is internal communication and where do the problems lie and could that be an issue can you can you link internal oh, communication ban and internal and ban internal communication is a cause of countless hours of misery in organizations um, for everybody involved and what constitutes bad internal communication is either the facts aren't right the intent isn't right, or the tone isn't right. Those are kind of the three big killers of kind of company level or even team level internal communication. But to answer your question of what is internal communication, it's any kind of communication that takes place within an organization or a defined, and this is my definition, it's not an institutional definition. It takes place within the boundaries of an organization or the boundaries of a community that is sufficiently distinct from any other that it, that, it, that it touches. So what happens in internal communication is, you know, at a basic transaction level, you've got the leadership of a company telling the employees what, of the company what to do in a mass sort of way. 
So not me as boss telling you as individual what you specifically need to do. It's more, you know, the traditional top-down internal communication is the leadership says this, everybody does this now. It's much more complicated and intricate than that now than this old kind of corporate megaphone that it used to be. I mean, you still have a lot of emphasis, particularly by managers and senior managers, on internal communication focusing on the top down. But organizations are not linear things. They are networks of people who are bumping into each other, talking to each other, all the time, either in physical space or in cyberspace, although they talk to each other in different ways between the two. And so if you're going to look at internal communication strategically and seriously, you need the top-down because the top-down sets the agenda and it's the benchmark against which one should be clarifying whatever it is one is doing at any point in time. But it's also a conversation between people and it's also the connections that are intentionally caused between people. I wrote an article um, a couple of weeks ago on something called super connection as being kind of a new superpower that communication folk and, you know, probably also, you know, people folk in organizations can take ownership of, which is really about a practice of proactively introducing people to each other in the organization. Um, it's something that I picked up um, back in 2016 working with a woman by the name of Lynn McDevitt-Pugh who does this type of work with Syrian refugees in the Netherlands. And the experience of a Syrian refugee in the Netherlands is actually very similar to that of a new hire in a corporation. And, you know, we're seeing companies these days that are having 25% new, new hires, 50% turnover. So not only do you have the problem of the turnover, but you have the real problem of getting those new people into the organization, getting them to understand the language and the priorities and the mechanisms through which the organization does its work. And internal communication has immense potential in facilitating, accelerating, and, you know, ideally um, maximizing the value of that process. And so that's something that I'm, you know, talking to companies about right now, as a matter of fact. But when when it is the 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 typical formation of the the leader managers that like it from top to to bottom thingy, how typical hierarchy? Basically. Yeah, hierarchy. Yeah, but what what about the uh, like ownership for 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 me as an employee to be valued and to be heard? Like, can you? with internal communication do that? Or like, how can you influence well, these stuff together? Well, the, the whole role of line managers, because what we're really talking about is the role of line manager as a facilitator, intermediary, you know, the extent to which the line manager adds value to that process. Also the extent to which the line manager is, um, sharing, caring, and or evaluating and judging the person's performance on a day-to-day basis. And also the relationships within the team. So you've got the relationship between employee and manager, but you also have the relationship between employee and colleague and the relationship between colleague and manager as it relates to that employee. Because the, the managers are constantly, in many cases, referring to the employees to get a sense of how each person is performing. So there is no real top-down one-way relationship. All of these relationships are multidimensional. But the problem is that the management role is very much a top-down role. And the extent to which the manager feels supported in the process is absolutely huge. But there's another side of the management piece. And this is, you know, a very kind of surreptitious conversation going on in the internal comms world. Um, Companies, particularly in the office-based world, have relied on a very high ratio of managers to employees, also in the production world to a certain extent. You know, in, in, in offices, you've got one manager for, say, three, five, ten employees. Is that really 
the best way for companies to spend their money on having that level of management? Or can internal communication plus technology help managers manage a much larger group of employees and at the same time strip out some of the less value-added activities in terms of the monitoring and the measuring and the, you know, the continuous prodding sometimes that, that managers have to do. The extent to which people are clear on what their, their objectives are, clear on the tools that they have to use the object, to deliver the objectives, and clear on the process or at least clear on the extent to which they have discretion over that process. You know, my sense is that internal communication could be a way for organizations to actually save a lot of money on management. But that's not a majority view in the, or in the, in, in the, in the field at all. Why is that? Because there's a, there's a strong culture around a belief that internal communication should, should, should support management and that we should help managers and that managers are the most trusted communicators in an organization, which they are in certain ways, but not in every way. You don't want to have your manager, for instance, reading the canteen menu to everybody, every employee every day or every week. Mm -hmm. You know, you could very easily have that outsourced to your intranet, for example. And I mean, that's kind of the most transactional example possible. But the extent to which we're requiring managers to do very basic transactional stuff that could be automated, is efficiency that could go back to the organization and really go back both to the shareholders and to the uh, the stakeholders and to the employees. But how how is it if, if like when I listen to you, the it it sounds like it's it's a dilemma because a where do you belong or if internal communications people they only look at the management it's just like the same as what is happening with the HR like. In the beginning, they started out well, and they were looking into people's resources and and how they could uh, supplement or help them and stuff. But then, in the course of the decades, it has changed, and it's more of looking out for the managers or company or or the owners. Where do you like? How 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 does the, this the, nor the North Star really has to be what the organization's objectives are? Okay. Um, so, you know, if you're an organization that wants to, say, feed the world, what are the tasks and activities and what is the level of intentionality and the level of commitment required to really deliver on that in terms of tangible sub-objectives in a certain period of time? That, you know, the objectives need to drive this. But what often happens is that the personalities of management or the personalities of line managers or the personalities of internal comms people ends up being the driver. Um, or, you know, sometimes you have, you know, the way a lot of internal comms folks are hired, you know, they're hired against often very detailed specs, which range from experienced C-suite brawler to um, detailed in design skills. And by the way, we'll pay 60,000 a year for that. What you get for 60,000 a year is you may get the in-design skills, but you're unlikely to get the real C-suite experience at that level. And so you're hiring people for, you know, what's p potentially a transformational role, but you're hiring people at too junior and too tactical of a level to deliver that transformational experience. And so they're afraid of doing more than they feel qualified to do. And so they often retreat into tactics or hide behind, you know, people who are more senior or whatever. But how is it, how, okay, we can agree upon that communication inside or internal communication is very important because you can't get the sense of uh, belonging if you don't know what is happening. Exactly. Inside I mean, the company. But, but how is it that in these... <laughs> particular days where sometimes it's when when we were younger then it was maybe better not to know than to know and now when the internet started coming people expect to know more than they sh maybe should or could or would or whatever like how how is your take on that like how the how much should a employee know because it's just what 
we have a company which is we have five divisions or or, or departments or stuff like do everybody need to know what's happening in the five divisions or departments well that's a big area where internal communication people particularly those that operate at a strategic level could really add value um, and this is not just in large corporations. This is particularly when you've got a company of, say, 150, where everybody's used to just talking to each other, going to, say, 300, 500, 1,000 in the space of a year. If you don't have the platform right and you can't reduce the noise, you could blow your organization up just as it's starting to grow. As people trip over... Um, in, you know, irrelevant information and you know lazy targeting i mean a lot of the problem with information overload in organizations and noise is that you've got too many stakeholders who think that the entire world the general public are all employees or their audience i mean a great example that i had was i was working with a multinational telecoms company based in Amsterdam, working in 14 different countries, most of which ended in Stan. So most of these were former Soviet Union countries or um, other Central and South Asian countries. And they had a real problem with corruption and dealing with, not, with the, not as much within the company as within the suppliers. And so we were working with Deloitte on compliance and they came up with these third-party due diligence cards playing cards and they wanted to get them to every single employee in the organization you know 90 percent of our employees didn't speak english you know 70 percent of the employees had no interaction with third-party um, contractors but somebody had a box to tick to say inform all employees about this and this was how they were going to do it and you know fortunately i was helped i was able to help put a stop to it but you know it was total insanity you know, we have this telecoms company and boom, we've got these, you know, third party due diligence playing cards written in legal English flying around Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Okay. <laughs> but how, how is it when you, in this instance, with a telecom company, how, when you are working on internal communication, do you meet the people on the floor? Do you meet the employers? Or how, how can you, like, is it all based on your, like, feeling? Or, like, how, how do you assess uh, what people need or how the internal communication... How is the... How should the internal communication be? Well, I mean, there's no standard for how internal communication should be. I mean, I, I think we should probably clarify that. I mean, you know, internal communication is as simple as a CEO in an all-hands meeting telling people how he sees the current situation to having employee surveys, to having, um, you know, intranets where there's a constant activity feed, something like an internal LinkedIn, to... Um, you know, facilitated group sessions to open space. You know, there's so many different, you know, just as, you know, external communication is everything from television to PR to advertising. I mean, so internal communication is a multi-headed beast that can be very simple or very complicated depending on the needs of the situation. But to bring back, to bring me back to that role at that telecoms company, I was senior editor, which is an unusual role for an internal comms person. But my job was really to create a coherent narrative that the English speakers in the organization could understand because we were operating in 14 different countries, none of which had English as their first language. And most of the countries had Russian as their first or second language, but a lot of the countries were, which didn't have Russian as a first and second language didn't have Russian on the radar screen at all. So we had to have, you know, kind of a group of, you know, 10, 15 percent of the people in the company who were speaking the same language about the same stuff and then put bringing that to life in their parts of the business in their own native languages. So we were kind of, co you know, we were pulling the story together and then distributing it out. And it was actually a lot more sophisticated than it looked. But what we were able to do 
you know, in an, in an industry that at the time was under serious challenge because telecoms had not been the winner in the battle between the tech companies and the telecoms, you know, because the tech companies could do all of their activities on top of the platforms that the telecoms owned. And so they were making all the money. We had all the infrastructure. And it was very difficult for us to figure out how to keep making money off that infrastructure. And so trying to create a narrative that at least the business was dealing with this issue and aggress- you know, dealing with, with it aggressively and forthrightly was a big thing. And it was a fantastic education working in this organization um, about different cultures, you know, about, you know, different generations. Because in some of these former Soviet Union countries, you had much younger managers because people who were over the age of 40 were schooled in the Marxist way of doing business. And it just didn't work to, to, you know, some of those, most of those people weren't able to make that transition. So we had 29-year-old C-level folks who were brilliant. You know, a lot of them are still very much thriving in the organization today. So, but how, how do you see internal communication? Because, like, we are talking about happiness at work. How important is good internal communication to the employers, to the owners, to the stakeholders, to the shareholders, like, to all the organization that you have. Like how, how can we link internal communication, internal communication, I don't know why I can't say this, those two words together, but I have Just to. call it I see. Okay, I see. <laughs> but like, how is it if you have a good I see and what effects has it on a company? on employers and stuff. Can you, do you know what I mean? Let like, me give, let me <coughs> give three brief different descriptions. First of all, at a context level, internal communication can create the language, the narrative, and indeed the atmosphere into which the entire organization works. A belief in, 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 in momentum, a self-confidence, a sense that what we're doing as a company is making a positive difference in the world. At a context level, excellent internal communication is critical to that. At a content level, making sure that the right people get the right content at the right time and, and as, minimum of a minima, uh, as minimal amount of noise as possible. Because the less noise you have to deal with, the more of a sense that you know, you're doing the right thing and you're on the, you're on the way that creates happiness, that creates confidence, that creates momentum in organizations. At a relationship level, when people understand what the rules of the game are and realize that how they're playing is within that rule rule book, that sets a lot of minds at ease. Where the rules are ambiguous, where the rules are, you know, where, where there's somebody who's got a thumb on the scale, that creates unhappiness. You know, the, the biggest source of unhappiness in organizations is misalignment. And misalignment usually comes when the organization's stated values and stated story are distinctly different from the actual values in the actual story. So context, content, and relationships, mm-hmm. that's a really important. But how about when you have the vision of the company? How, how good are... Uh, the owners or like the executives, how good are they to, to communicate the vision? So the, the as you say that we are we are working here towards this goal and we are doing this and this and then how important is it that you explain it? Like how can you do you step in as an interim? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to uh, to explain how? Sure. I mean, you know, I work with leaders on messaging. I work with communicators on messaging and mechanics. And I do research into how people feel about what's going on. I mean, I have something that I like to call the two question survey. And the two questions are, what are the big priorities facing the organization? Or what are the three big priorities facing the organization? And then the second question, are what are the three most important things you're working on right now? What are the three biggest tasks in your job? 
And then you look at the gap between the two. You look at the extent to which people are mentioning corporate priorities in the context of their personal priorities. If that's high, you're going to have high alignment and you're probably going to have pretty decent happiness in the organization, decent satisfaction. If the stuff that people are working on and the corporate priorities don't seem to be linked, I would su suggest that the opposite would be the case. And now I'm thinking about the five departments. And if it's almost like when you when you're working in a okay, I worked for the Reykjavik Council for 12 years. And my division, we always felt that we were not seen or heard. Well, in, in, because it, 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 like where the priorities lie, like how is it when you have five departments, you sometimes the HR are upper management, sometimes it's not, and, and internal communication is sometimes inside the HR or like, but when, when is it that envy can we call it envy when when sure. people people know okay why are they doing this why are we are not allowed to do this and stuff how how do you like talk to the owners about this stuff to get this coherent so, so it's sometimes you don't have to talk to the owners sometimes it's really about your own proactivity as a function sometimes it's about your own the extent to which you as a function are able to make the case for being included in the in the conversation. So, I mean, you know, it's a it's a two-way street. Power in the organization only belongs to the people who own it, the people who lead it. When the people in the organization are just simply passive and not, you know, taking initiative. I mean, the whole point of the We Lead Comms initiative is about people taking initiative, particularly communication pros taking initiative. And if you've got a function in a business that feels like it's being cut out, yes, attention needs to be paid, but the people in that function need to reach out to the other functions. A, to listen. What is it that, you know, say, for instance, you're the procurement function, for instance. What does the procurement function offer to the other parts of the business? What does it need from the other parts of the business? And can that conversation take place at an employee-to-employee -employee level rather than a department-department level? That again comes back to super connection. It's like, you know, if you have three people, you know, if you've got like a thousand employees in a city and you've got a hundred people working in, in procurement, if you have three people making 20 introductions in a year and those people in procurement are introducing procurement people to other people in other parts of the business, you can radically transform that over the course of a year without the management having to get involved. So it's it's to see and be open to like the, the possibilities in our organization and stuff and be not afraid to talk about it. Exactly. You know, never be afraid to have a conversation. Never be afraid of a meeting. But how is it? Because now you have like it's intriguing intriguing listening to you because it's it sounds like you have been working just when you're talking about the telecom <laughs> company you worked for over so many countries and stuff. And then you are in Iceland, and Iceland is a small country uh, with a size of a, a relative small town in uh, the U.S. Uh, how is it, like, is, are companies in Iceland, have you, ha, do you have a knowledge about it? Are we good in internal communications, or have you done talk to people wrote, about it? I wrote an article about it back in 19 about something called convergence in Iceland. You can, it's, it's something that I had published in a, a magazine called Communication Director. Uh -huh. And there were a number of things that people in Iceland were doing really well. So the convergence is about internal and external communication, either working together or one replacing the other. And that's an ongoing discussion in the communication world. But in Iceland, what was a common practice was that if an organization wanted to really get the message out internally, it would publish something in the local newspaper. If it was wanting to get something out externally, it would send a memo to employees because employees getting a memo like, like that would be on the phone leaking it to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the country. <laughs> and Iceland's an extremely networked country. You've got 
you know, you've got lots of family ties, you've got lots of relationships, everybody knows each other. And if you want something not to be secret, write the word secret on top of it here. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's a good, good explaining about those Icelanders. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love the Icelanders. <laughs> I love being here. But okay, so so we know now we have discussed it, and I, I think people get the gist of it that that internal communication can affect the happiness at work uh, stuff because that is the main theme. But my client's happiness at work, although you you said it in the beginning, but what what is it that you do to just keep focusing, doing the stuff you have? Like I know you guys came here from the Netherlands when COVID hit or in the yes. midst of it and like, and you just, you are just flying off now. I, I know because we know each other personally, but how is it to, what is happiness at work for you? Or how is happiness at work? How is happiness at home for you? Like, and we are, you talk mentioned it. You are happy when you can feel a sense of accomplishment or something. Well, it's, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is I like writing and yeah. I write, you know, I write articles quite frequently and by and large, the stuff that I produce tends to be good on the first or maybe second draft. So it doesn't take me that long to do it. And so that, you know, that kind of sets the tone for a lot of what I do. So like I wrote the article on Super Connection a couple of weeks and boom, um, a certain large company based in Cupertino, California, invites me to talk to their global internal comms team. Um, you know, for me sitting in um, a home office in Reykjavik, Iceland, looking out over um, cars that are snowed in right now. You know, so it's kind of like there's this extreme locality and this extreme globality to what I do. Um, another thing that gives me happiness in what I do is remembering to be agnostic. I mean, you know, my, you know, I come from a Jewish background, but my religious views are actually quite agnostic in terms of, you know, not believing everything 100%, believing, you know, maybe at least 0.5% that somebody else might actually have the right answer. Uh huh. And, you know, even though I've got strong beliefs, being able to recognize that other people have strong beliefs that ho they hold equally strongly. And aside when we're not debating about, you know, clearly observable facts, being able to accept that somebody else might have the right answer on a subject. You know, I think that gives me a certain degree of um, comfort. You know, if I'm getting into a discussion with somebody, it's like, yes, I'm, you know, it's not because I'm right, but because I think my idea is better than yours, but I'm open to yours being better than mine. Um, and I think a third thing that gives me a bit of happiness is you know, really feeling like I'm in the middle of something that's happening. Uh, being able to connect people, being able to get messages out, being able to share certain things, you know, feeling like I'm part of a team, but not necessarily living with the teams that I'm part of. Yeah. Um, I really like that. I like, you know, being 100% for my clients, but not 100% with my clients. So you want to be there, but not like you want to be in the background or something like. I want to be in the background, but not necessarily out of the limelight. I'm willing to be publicly supportive or publicly, you know, to publicly advocate for my clients or for th for the stuff that I believe in, um, inside the field and in other other areas of life. Um, but at the same time, I don't necessarily have to manage everything. I mean, if anything. You know, one of the things that I that makes me really happy is to be able to focus on what I'm good at and the contribution that I can make, as opposed to having to manage stuff, because managing large amounts of stuff doesn't really bring my best self into something. How is it when you are? Because I'm intrigued by your writing, because I, I envy you, because I I I find I'm it takes me hours to write, weeks months just to start <laughs> on writing because I'm always, no, and delete, 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 delete. Uh, I don't know what, if it's called, uh, is it a syndrome or something? But how do you get ideas to write, to 
connect or like when are you at your best? Do you are you are you walking outside or are you just like watching Super Bowl or American football or whatever and just like oh yes I have to do this and like what and do you get the tingling sense of oh I'm onto something this is worth exploring and and then when it gets there in the end maybe it, it's a success then you are happy or or like then you feel the joy maybe happiness and joy you feel the joy of that you got the idea well it 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 happened the other day i was clearing out the dishwasher and i was getting ready for the for the talk that i'm giving tomorrow to this very large company and i was talking about super connection and what i was thinking was what we're really talking about is an audience of two which are basically the person you want to introduce and the person you want to introduce them to. And it's like communication folk have long been focused on these big audiences, lots of people. But in fact, if you get the right two people together, you could actually have much more impact than if you gather a thousand people in a room and read them the quarterly financial report. Um, but when I was really, when I was sitting there, I was thinking audience of two, damn, that's good. You know, it's like, <laughs> fuck. Um, and that, you know, the other thing that I do from time to time, particularly when there's no one at home is I talk to myself. I, I talk, I go through the process of talking through this because in listening to it, I catch my ideas more than I'm, if I'm just thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously I don't want to do it while I'm walking down the street or <laughs> when my stepson's around because he'll think I'm crazy, but, um, crazy you know, and old. Exactly. <laughs> But there is a certain value of it. My dad once said, um, talking to yourself is fine so long as you don't interrupt. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so he, he, you maybe get it from him or? I'm sure I get it from him. I get most of, <laughs> I get most of what I've learned. My, my, my dad is the former sports columnist from Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I get my accent, I get my vocabulary, I get my use of the English language. Uh, I think you know, what, what intelligence I have, I think actually comes from both sides of my family. I grew I, well, I hopefully have, your mother contributed. My mother certainly <laughs> contributed, but my dad contributed quite a bit as yeah. well. <laughs> but how, uh, Mike, and happiness, like in life, what, what is it that makes you tick, okay, besides internal comp, because truly I have never met a person who is so intrigued by internal communication and you mention it a lot when we talk together and and it's just it is your fire it's your like your thing but how what is it that makes you like happiness in in your life private not private like what do you do when you want to i know you are fond of the icelandic thing but i'm also very fond of pigs yeah okay i was going to put that in some context in this conversation, oh, but okay. I, <laughs> I didn't, but you did it. Yes. But I, I was more thinking about the hot tubs. Oh yeah, I love Icelandic hot tubs, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're in a place where the snow is up to your kneecaps and your wife says, I can't park, let's go to the pool. Uh, that's a pretty Icelandic response yeah. <laughs> to a snowstorm problem. And you know, literally we were having a snowstorm and um, the street was impassable, and so my wife called, said, you know, we can't get through the street. Why don't we go to the pool? Because the pool's parking lots are, are pretty much always taken care of because they're so popular here. But literally, we went to the pool, and within, within 20 minutes, we went from snowstorm to being shoulder deep in 30-slash-90 um, degree water. Um, it was gorgeous, and, you know, it was just 90 being... Fahrenheit, 30 being Celsius, of course. It's actually 40 Celsius, 38 to 42. Depends on which pool you're in. Yes, but 38 is the max, like, it's the lowest. So that's, it must be 100. No, the actual swimming pool. Yeah, the swimming pool is 30. Yes. Yes, because you have to swim yourself warm. Exactly. <laughs> but, no, it's having outdoor um, water massage in the depths of winter when it's dark for 20 hours. I mean, there's there's no beating it. It's it's Iceland's a completely different experience to anything that you've ever had. 
And if you if you want to come visit, check out www.icelandunwrap.com. Yes, that that is a great website. Absolutely. <laughs> and the reason you mentioned that because that is your wife's. Uh, that's my wife's business. That's yes. right. But how how is there more that you love to do, like in in uh, sports or like well, what do you do? What is like happiness in life for you? Well, happiness in life for me is really about. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, hanging out with my family. It's about, um, really connecting people, finding, you know, finding the connections that stick is a real motivator for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've gotten to the point where I just sometimes play with it and see what, see what happens. Um, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time online. I'm, you know, active in a number of conversations on Twitter and stuff like that, in addition, in addition to internal comms. And, um, you know, for my sins, I have been a Tottenham Hotspur supporter for the last 26 years. And that's a really interesting happiness conversation because happiness as a Tottenham supporter is rare. <laughs> I was just thinking, they never win anything. No, I mean, it's extremely frustrating. We, you know, we've been... You know, it's been like thirty years since we've had a, a a major cup trophy, and you know the the biggest accomplishment of my entire twenty six years was finishing in second place in a club competition. Granted, it was the Champions League, but still, it was second place. And I have friends who are Liverpool fans and Man United fans and Real Madrid fans, and they expect to win every single game. And yeah. I'm wondering. How can you be happy as a Liverpool fan when you expect to win every single game? Every loss is a catastrophe. Every win is expected. When Tottenham wins, it's cause for genuine celebration. <laughs> when we win something big, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's you'd set fireworks off. <laughs> or you'd take a, D, you know, crack a DVD of the game, which is the big joke about Tottenham fans. Whenever we have a, a decent game, we make a DVD of it. Um <laughs> But, you know, and, and I, I grew up rooting for a similar team in, in American baseball, the the Chicago Cubs, which went, um, I don't know, maybe 100-something years without a, without a championship. And it got to the point where there was a joke where um, there were two guys, um, Goldberg and O'Reilly, and they were shoveling coal in the pits of hell. And the flames rose, and the flames rose as they shoveled, and then all of a sudden the flames stopped. And the snow came down, and Goldberg and O'Reilly looked at each other and said, "The Cubs won the World Series. The Cubs won the World Series." <laughs> so, and did they win? They did win the World <laughs> Series in 2016. Yes, and haven't won since. No, but no. that's fine. That's we're good for another hundred years. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but how is it? Uh, living in Iceland for you, because as you mentioned, you have lived in eight different countries. No, seven different countries in the course of your life. Yeah. And I know because you went out for a walk last year with your wife. Yes. And she stopped to talk to this lady. Yes. And little did you know. That she was the prime minister. Yeah. So we say that if you want to say something, then you have to go to the hot tub and then you can complain. Because yeah. there is always somebody there who knows somebody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Iceland's a highly networked society. Absolutely. And the hot tubs. And the hot tubs are the hub of the network. Yes. So you are happy just staying here. Yeah. Although what's funny is that I've never really succeeded at learning the language of any of the countries in which I've lived with the exception of Britain. And even that was a little difficult. Um, I'm terrible at learning foreign languages and I haven't started with Icelandic yet. I know I need to because, um, it doesn't show appropriate commitment for me not to, but there is a certain value in being in a place where you can keep your mental distance from the talk radio and the tabloids and, um, the, the societal complaining that goes on, um, you know, it really helps me keep focus. When I was in America or even in, in England, you know, small issues, like, you know, people talking about the Kardashians or um, football, you know, certain footballers or, you know, I mean, Brexit was an exception because Brexit had a really 
dramatic impact on, on, on certain aspects of my life because I basically lost my ability to move between countries shortly after getting a British passport. So it's like, you know, I'm, uh. I'm still unhappy about that. Um, you know, Brexit and anti-Semitism are the only issues that I really block people on, on Twitter and LinkedIn or Facebook about. Um, pretty much anything else is fair game in my world. But, yeah, Brexit was tough, and the back chatter about Brexit was really unpleasant as well. Uh, but here in Iceland, the local back chatter doesn't get to me, and that's, that's helpful. Yeah. Oh, you must be so happy. I would love to just put my, like, I, the best way not to listen is to not to watch the, the news. Because then you get don't get anything, like, but you can't. You can't. No, because you're expected to know certain things, and you yeah. need to know certain things. And I mean, this is a, this actually comes back to the internal comms conversation. I mean, um, one of my friends in the internal comms world raised the question of, can we create an unsubscribe button for internal comms? And I said, yes, so long as it links to a list of the unsubscribed. Not because I necessarily want to hunt down and kill these people, although somebody's expression of disinterest in internal comms is something that would be a valid reason for looking into their, their commitment to the organization. But also it's like, okay, what is it about what we're doing that wants you to hit the final unsubscribe button? What are we missing? What are we screwing up? You know, how are we bothering you by doing the best we can to share what's going on in the organization? Yeah. I think it would take the conversation to another level if we had access to that information, even if we didn't share it with anybody else. Well, I hope, because now, I, I, I started out to have this podcast in 30 minutes, but recently it has gone to 50 minutes, okay. and now we have hit the 50 minutes mark. Got it. It's so interesting, this discuss, discussion, and I have told you many times that it's just fun to pick your brain. But now, because you mentioned the Icelandic learning, you know, if you have listened to my podcast, we always end on an Icelandic word that my guests have to say. Are you ready and up for the challenge? Sure. And I will only say it once, and then I will laugh, probably. <laughs> I'm a mean guy. Can you say, Hafnafjörðavegur? Hafnafjörðavegur. <laughs> you are so close. You, I think you will be a fair Icelandic. Like, I think you will learn Icelandic in, like, 15 minutes or something. Maybe 15 years. <laughs> but Hafnafjarðavegur is the road to a town from Reykjavík to Hafnafjörður. Okay. So just to be clear on that. Got it. I but kind of knew that, but... Yeah you, yeah, you got the gist of it. So, Mike, thank you very much for so meeting me and, and talk about internal communication and the importance of it and how it can affect happiness at work. Absolutely. And if people want to communicate with Mike. You are well known on the LinkedIn site and overall. And we will maybe put it on wherever we can. Brilliant. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Tribute to Happiness podcast. Tune in for next week's episode. You'll find us on social media.